the Centemlins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And this, believe it or not, is the roundup of our posts from August. Now, an awful lot has happened in the world since we last spoke. Uh, we have a new prime minister. We have a new monarch here in the UK. Many things have changed, but there's been a lot going on and hence why we're a little late with our August podcast. Simon, you've been a busy boy? Yeah, been around and about, um, working hard, um, yeah, getting new jobs going, yeah, doing lots and lots of stuff. And I'm currently in Belfast for the ARCHEM Annual Scientific Conference, which I'm really looking forward to. But let's crack straight on. Let's think about what we talked about in the August blog posts. There's just a little to talk about, but actually that means we can spend more time, which is a nice thing. The first thing, Simon, it's back to COVID. And this is baricitinib for hospital COVID patients from the Lancet. We've done a lot about COVID, unsurprisingly, over the last two years, but this was about a new agent. Before we get into that, perhaps we should just talk a little bit, Simon, if you didn't mind, about the recovery trial, just a refresher for people, and also the drugs that we think do work and then the ones that don't work. And then we can talk about baricitinab and what they found about that. I think it's one of the most amazing journeys in science of well, for, for decades, really. Pandemic comes along. We clearly don't have a clue how to treat it. We've never faced this disease before. What happens is a load of people start trying a whole bunch of different drugs out there to see if they can reduce the mortality with this devastating disease, which if you remember, back at the beginning had a 30% mortality. About one in three patients who we admitted to hospital died. It was really, really, really bad. And so lots of things were tried. And around the world... And people did a lot of observational type studies. But what we didn't have is really well conducted randomized control trials. And in the UK, that's what we managed to do. The recovery trial is an open label randomized control trial of hospitalized patients with COVID-19 who are then randomized to a very variety of different treatments. And we follow them up for 28 days. And the prime outcome is 28 day mortality, although there will be some longer term data coming out in the future. And it's been remarkable. So we already know through recovery that dexamethasone has a massive effect, really reduces your mortality. Tocilizumab, is another anti-inflammatory drug, very powerful anti-inflammatory drug, reduces your mortality if you've got severe COVID-19. And also the monoclonal antibodies, if, you, if you've got a patient who's got low levels of their own antibodies at admission, then if you give them additional monoclonal antibodies, it, it has an effect. If you've already got high antibodies, it doesn't seem to have an effect. More importantly than that, we know that hydroxychloroquine doesn't work, lipinavir, ritonavir doesn't work, convalescent plasma doesn't work, azithromycin doesn't work, colchicine doesn't work, aspirin doesn't work. And all of that information does. How many is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine randomized control trial study outcomes just from COVID-19 over a two-year period. That is just insane in terms of the progress that's gone through. Now, there's criticisms of the recovery trial. You know, it's open label. It's not blinded, blah, blah, blah. But it has reduced mortality such that now I think in hospital mortality around about the 14, 15% mark. And they're still looking at other drugs. There's a few um, still being looked at, high-dose corticosteroids um, and then a whole bunch of other things which are, are not only unusual but also really quite difficult to pronounce. So we've got to that stage with COVID-19. It does seem actually that locally for us we're getting a little surge again. I don't know how it's been in your hospitals if uh, to our listeners whether you're seeing uh, the reversal of masking policy. We had a period of time where we had no masks for most of the hospital and now we're back to wearing masks. Baricitinib. Simon, do you want to explain what a Janus kinase 1, 2 inhibitor is or sh should I? Um, shall I? Good, you go for it. Okay, so um, I can't in uh, great detail, but I'm going to call it a JAK2 because JAK2 inhibitor sounds a bit cooler. This is a drug which is used a lot in rheumatology. Well, not that often in rheumatology. It's a very potent anti-inflammatory agent. And the really interesting thing about the baricitinib thing, we already know that dexamethasone, an anti-inflammatory drug, improves outcomes in COVID-19. We know that tocilizumab for patients who've got serious features of, of COVID-19 infection, that also works. 
And then this barricisinib thing came up, and there were some early trials looking at whether or not this works, and it was suggesting it did. What we really didn't know is whether you give dexamethasone, which is a pretty hardcore drug, together with tocilizumab, which is a really hardcore drug, and then you give baricitinib on top of that for certain patients, whether or not that combination is just so much anti-inflammatory action, or immunosuppressive action, should I say, immunosuppressive action, whether that's actually going to be a really bad thing. And so we had quite a lot of concerns when we were considering doing a randomized controlled trial, exposing our patients to it in locally about whether or not that much immunosuppression was actually going to tip us over the edge and and lose that balance of benefit versus risk. Because there's no doubt that you can get some pretty awful immunosuppressive type complications with any of these drugs. And in combination, gosh, that could be quite alarming. What did they find, Sam? My reading of this was that it was a pretty positive trial. Just under 11,000 patients enrolled, just over 8,000 were randomly allocated to receive their usual care plus baricitinib versus the usual care alone. So quite a big trial, you know, 8,000 plus patients. And of those, the vast majority, like 95% of them were also already on corticosteroids and a quarter of them were on metocilizumab, which is really interesting. So a lot of these patients are already pretty heavily immunosuppressed. And the headline feature at 28 days is that uh, 12% of people died if they had the baricitinib as well. And 14% of them died if they didn't. So a 2% reduction, so that's a number needed to treat of around about 1 in 50 in favour of giving the baricitinib. And that's, that's, again, that's pretty big. You know, 1 in 50 is not a million miles away from the effect of aspirin in myocardial infarction. So, you know, a pretty potent drug and a pretty big effect. And again, you know, go back to that number, third of the people when they came in the first wave of COVID-19 died in hospital. And now we're looking at an in-hospital mortality of between 12 to 13, 14%. That, that's a halving of mortality in two years. That is amazing. That, that's science in action. So the recovery trial continues to produce the goods, both telling us what we should use and what we shouldn't use. A quick reminder for number needed to treat for those of you who might be new to that concept. It's taking that absolute risk reduction and then turning it into something that we can relate to patients. So a 2% absolute risk reduction converts into a one in 50 number needed to treat. What we're saying is that for every 50 people we give this drug to, one will have a benefit that they otherwise wouldn't have got. And then the benefit in this case is they won't die. So that's not bad. And one in 50, you might think, well, surely all our drugs are better than that. But actually, that's a pretty good number needed to treat. People are always quite surprised, I think, about how many people you need to treat with something in order to get a benefit. So we're still learning stuff about COVID. There's still more to learn. Keep your eyes and ears out for it on the shop floor, because I think you're still going to be seeing patients with it. I remember about two years ago, every patient we saw had COVID. And now it's a case of trying to remind ourselves that it's still going on. But it's very much part of the things that we're going to have to live with in our recess rooms and throughout the department and hospitals, really. Simon, our next post was about calcium and blood products. Now, we've talked about this before, haven't we? The the idea that now those three things we used to concentrate on, we're going to add the need for thinking about calcium too. And this is more evidence that calcium is a good thing when we're looking at patients who are bleeding. Yeah, that's right. So I think it was Karen Bro who said the, the new triad of death in trauma is the still the coagulopathy, but also hypocalcemia and hyperkalemia. Of course, hypocalcemia is particularly bad if you're hyperkalemic and you've got a clotting disorder. So they all three of them pretty bad and they also sort of prey on each other. Um, yeah, this was actually a survey paper from Resuscitation Plus uh, looking at how people use calcium. So there's there's been a real interest in calcium over the last couple of years, its importance in trauma, largely from observational studies and looking at things like the PAMPA trial and the COMBAT trials, which were done over in the US, which showed a really strong association between hypocalcemia and death. And I think that's probably what we've seen anecdotally in the UK as well. People are really interested in it. We have to avoid hypocalcemia, but you know, how are we doing it? And I don't know how you do it in your shop, but what essentially this says 
is that there's really no consensus amongst, as it happens, air ambulance um, teams, but I suspect the same is true of emergency departments and emergency physicians. There's no real consensus about how much calcium to give, what sort of calcium to give, and when to give it. So in my world, what we do is we give one yellow, one red, and more calcium. One yellow, one red, one calcium. One yellow, one red, one calcium. And the calcium is calcium chloride. That's what we do. I'm not sure that's the best regime, but lots of variability knocking around the place. In fact, on this study, you know, about 22% of people gave it with the first one, but 30% of people didn't give calcium until they're given four units. So a big variability therein. And what, what do you do in your shop? I'm a big fan. I always love a drug where the benefit massively outweighs any potential harm. And for me, calcium is a pretty safe drug to give. Pre-hospitally, if I've opened up the blood and I'm giving blood in the pre-hospital environment, for me, that means the patient is actively bleeding and bad stuff is happening. And I don't think I'm going to be stopping giving the blood. I'm not going to give one unit and then that's it. It's likely they're going to use all that we've got when we get them on the way to hospital. For me, it's as soon as they get blood products in trauma, they get a dose of calcium. And it's calcium chloride we use too. We actually keep a vial of calcium chloride in with our blood box, our credo box that keeps everything cool on the aircraft. So it's there as an aid memoir. I must admit, there are times I, I do forget and I need that trigger to remind me there's so much to think of in trauma, isn't there? But calcium is one of those things that I occasionally say in my briefing for the major trauma team, please just remind me because it is something that I, it's not quite into my everyday thinking, but it's hopefully into my everyday practice. So I'm a big fan. And then after giving the first one, I could be measured by what we see on a venous blood gas. And I'm a big fan also of arterial lines in our patients who have trauma, particularly who are hypotensive. So whatever sort of blood cash you're getting, whether that's arterial or venous, having a look at the calcium on there and then titrating how much calcium you give in response to what you see on there. But the first one goes in with the first unit of whether it's yellow or red. We tend to give yellow first as well. And by yellow, of course, we mean FFP and red, we mean packed red cells. Absolutely. One of the things I did pick up in this paper, and um, it was from Caroline Leach, great friend of the podcast, who started talking about the potential damaging effects of hypercalcemia, which hasn't wasn't really something I was that aware of in the past. But there are some studies out there, not great studies, but there are some studies out there that suggest that high levels of calcium may in fact also be associated with an increase in mortality. And also that it can cause cytoplasmic or mitochondrial calcium overload, leading to cardiac hypercontraction and oxidative stress. I am quoting her tweet here. Maybe there is a Goldilocks zone. We don't want too little. Clearly, that's associated with poor outcomes. But if we all start randomly giving lots and lots of calcium, maybe we could cause harm by hypercalcemia as well. I see a randomized control trial coming, don't you? It's uh, one of those treatments, I guess, which is cheap and easy to give. And if we can do it for TXA, why can't we give it for do it for calcium? But for me, my emergency physician mode, give blood, give calcium, measure would be what I would do. I think that's probably a very wise and um, a useful summary there. And the third paper for August, it was summertime. So we've just got the three from August, but enough to talk about. This is a opinion piece, if you like, from you about maintaining a balance in tough times. We see an awful lot at the moment, don't we, about how hard it is to work in our emergency departments. And don't forget, this was August. Uh, what we sort of tend to call summer in the UK. And we then talk about winter and we talk about winter pressures and we talk about winter NHS crisis. But even over the last few months, I think people have been really struggling with different parts of the job that we do, whether that's a paramedic in the pre-hospital environment, doctors, nurses, ACPs, whatever it might be, even down to the staff who keep the whole thing running like our receptionists and housekeepers. This is a really thought-provoking piece, Simon. How do you think people can maintain a balance 
And it's so much more than talking on a podcast, but what what would be your tips? The, the, the post came about from lots of different thoughts over the years. I mean, we've we've learned a lot from Liz Crow, haven't we, over in Australia about work-life blend and the fact that when you're at work, there's a lot of positives about being at work. It's often a really interesting environment. We get lots of buzz. We get lots of energy. People like you and I get lots of energy out of being at work and being around um, other people who are excited about what we do seeing, you know, tricky patients, making diagnoses, doing stuff. There's a lot of positives that we get out of that. You know, where do you derive your energy from at work? And for people like me, unsurprisingly, I suppose, it's things like education, teaching, research. Those are things which give me lots of energy. And there's always a risk that when we come under a lot of stress or we're very, very busy, that somebody has a great idea that actually all we need to do now is just see patients and patients and patients and just work. But, you know, don't do any audit, don't do any teaching, don't do any research, don't do any service development. Just deal with a queue which happens to be here on this particular day, at this particular hour, at this particular time. You know, I hear lots of stories of people having their teaching cancelled, their simulation sessions, oh, we can't possibly do that, we're too busy. And the problem with that, it, it changes the balance about your work experience then. So there's always stuff which at work, you know, I don't particularly like doing. I'm not a big admin person. I don't particularly like answering complaints. So other people do, which is great. I don't. But if all that happens is you go to work and all the fun stuff, the stuff that really energised you has been stopped because we're busy, you're just left with the stuff which then is a little bit more draining, which means your overall experience of work goes down, which means your energy goes down, which means your productivity goes down, which means you don't have the service development ideas and stuff like that. You know, it's a vicious cycle. And so this was just an appeal aimed, you know, at people like me, but also clinical leads, managers, colleagues to say, look, if you start taking the fun stuff out, you know, you might improve performance for the next 10 minutes, if at all, probably not. But you could seriously cause long term harm and medium term harm to your departments by taking those things away. I think it's easy for us to sit here in our, well, not ivory towers, but some form of towers and try and say that this is easy. But Obviously, there are people within hospitals who are under huge pressure to get things done, to get people seen, to get patients through the system. I guess the equation I always tend to do is that if you want to do a piece of small group teaching for half an hour and you want to take four doctors for half an hour, remember that on average, those doctors see one patient an hour. So if you take them off for a cumulative amount of two hours, that's two patients who won't be seen, but it'll be four doctors who will have had half an hour of your attention. And by my attention, I mean me being non-shop floor based. I'm on my supporting activities day or teaching day or whatever you want to call it. And that is a huge investment for not a lot of cost. But when your department's busy, there is that knee-jerk reaction of we mustn't take doctors off the shop floor, but just rationalize that with logic. And the logic would say, actually, it's not going to make a big difference. That's a hard thing to take on. And, and when you take doctors off the shop floor, you move them to different areas of the department. All of a sudden, people look around and it feels sparse. And there is that feeling of a department where they don't see a doctor or an ACP and they, they worry. And it's about reassuring people and then also not taking the mickey. So if you tell a department, we're going to do half an hour with four doctors, make it half an hour. In fact, make it 25 minutes so people can go and have a wee and then get back on the shop floor in time. I think the bit that the shop floor team get really resentful of is when you say, I'll do half an hour. And then you find yourself waffling on and it's an hour because they've set themselves up to be there ready when those doctors come back. They've got an idea of where they're going to work. Don't abuse it when you get the doctor's to you and you're able to teach them. I think you're absolutely right. And of course, when we say doctors, we also mean, you know, all professionals who are working with us, the ACPs and the nurses and all, it applies to all groups. The bit that sort of triggered me eventually was this, was when hypothetically there was a particularly busy day when 
the department's absolutely rammed. Nobody's moving anywhere. We can't fix social care. There's no beds on the ward. It's pretty grim. A situation which would be familiar to many people. And there's almost that thing about, well, we have to do something. So let's cancel teaching means that we can then go back to whoever and say, we did something. It was completely ineffective. It made no difference at all. Pissed everybody off. But we did something. And those are the th- that that kind of sort of logic. I can see how it happens. It's just so short-sighted. It is, I believe, the little things that matter. It's the ability to get a drink of cold water on a hot summer's day. It's the ability to get a toilet break without having to queue for three days or walk around the department trying to find a loo that's still working. And then it is the bits about in- enabling growth and also encouraging that bit that Liz taught us all, which is about meaning making. If you go on the shop floor and it's, oh, isn't this doom and gloom and isn't it awful and isn't it bad, then that's all that people are going to feel. And on the other side, I do like the phrase toxic positivity. So people see through when you're just being overwhelmingly positive and it looks awful. There's a balance in the middle and finding that balance, a bit like we talked about for this whole post, is important. So, you know, yeah, it's busy, but this is what we do. You can make a real difference. You can make people have less pain. You can look after them. You can do the little bits that make a real difference and you can learn stuff. That's what our job is all about. I have toxic positivity. Yes, there are 120 people waiting in the waiting room. But look, that's 120 learning opportunities is not the sort of thing that you want to tell people. So we're looking for meaning making and not toxic positivity. We're looking for keeping going with the simple things because they're the things that matter. And if you invest in your staff, they will give you back a hundredfold. Partly perhaps one of the reasons that our doctors don't see as many patients as we'd like is because, well, they just don't feel invested in what they're doing. Maybe if we invest in them, they'll invest in us and invest in the patients. And that will be good for everybody. So, Simon, that's August, just the three papers. Just a couple of other notes. Simon, I noticed on Twitter that our friends over at the Recess Room have reached the incredible landmark of 100,000 downloads a month for their podcast. Really can't go without a quick mention. Within this world of FOMED, we're all pretty friendly. We compete gently with each other in that we try and encourage each other and, and we look at what they're doing. But that is astonishing. Yeah, and that's the answer. There is that's a very high quality product, and um, which speaks to people. Good on them. Well done. Well done, team. It's a, yeah, something for us to aspire to. In. Well, we'll keep working. And to that aim, actually, if you do have people who you think would like this and Emily's podcast, do please point them in our direction. Simon and I have been talking recently about all sorts of different projects we're going to be pursuing. Whether you're a medical student, a doctor just starting out in emergency care, or further down the line, there's going to be lots more coming from us over the next 12 months. Please do like and subscribe us on iTunes or whichever podcast feeder you use. It helps a little bit to get the word out there. And for now, thanks for listening to St. Emlyn's and take care.